Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode isn't about the victim, it's about the murderer. His identity isn't a mystery. We know his name, his age, and based on witness descriptions, he would later become known as the sad-faced killer. We know what he did, when he did it, and where. But the one detail we can't explain is why. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details, and as a dramatization of the real events. It may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 91, The Sad-Faced Killer. Today, I'm standing on Sussex Gardens in Paddington, W2, one street south of the pub where Reg Christie met Kathleen Maloney, two streets east of the torture of Vincent Carey, a few doors up from the Blackout Ripper's final victim, Doris Junet, and three streets southeast of the bungled assassination by Carlos the Jackal, or as he should forever be known, Carlos the Jackass, coming soon to Murder Mile. This is familiar territory. East is Edgware Road, South is Hyde Park, north is Paddington Station, and to the west is Bayswater. As before, Sussex Gardens is a tree-lined street, with oddly no gardens, just parking bays. And on both sides are five-storey terraces with white plasterwork below and brown brick above. It looks posh, but the famous don't live here. As for at least the last century, Half of these houses were converted into hotels and motels for truckers, trekkers and backpackers, sightseers, salesmen and sex workers. And although 99% of its residents are legit, it does have a long history as the home of bouncy bed bonkers, the one-hour willy-whackers and the 50-quid fanny fillers. I mean, yes, 
Lots of decent people do stay here. But don't be surprised if you see a slew of fat old blokes with their daughters, their granddaughters, and often their great-granddaughters, who sign in as Mr. and Mrs. Smith, seem very touchy-feely. And although it's lovely outside, they spend the next 58 minutes inside, doing aerobics, grunting, and decorating their room with oddly shaped latex balloons. And as Olga, or whatever daddy's daughter's name is today, is given 300 quid for her taxi ride home, the maid has to decide whether to boil wash the sheets or just burn them. Previously called the Sora Hotel, 162 Sussex Gardens is now a pleasant motel known as the Style Hotel. It's affordable, clean, and its reviews are consistently good. And although, as many tourists check in, they're probably given a list of places to visit, I doubt anyone ever mentions the murder in room 12. As it was here, on Friday the 27th of May 1950, that a young woman was brutally murdered by a maniac who the press would dub the sad-faced killer. But to his family, his name was Donald. Many details relating to the victim have been redacted from the police files. Her life, her job, her injuries, and the incident itself. So out of respect to her relatives, the details I do know won't be revealed here. But the question we're asking isn't about her. It's who was the sad-faced killer, and why did he kill? As murderers go, Donald was an unlikely suspect. Born on the 1st of May 1921, Donald Westgarth Davidson was one of three siblings to Mary and Matthew, owners of a prosperous bakery at 21 New Bottle Street in Hootenlespring, a peaceful little village nestled between Sunderland and Durham in the northeast of England. The Davidsons were a close-knit family with a steady income, a solid work ethic, and a well-deserved reputation as decent people who lived a harmonious life together in a nice little thatched cottage. As a baby, Donald slept, ate, and behaved well. He suffered no major illnesses, diseases, or trauma, and he was never spoiled, starved, or abused. He was just an ordinary little boy from a very ordinary family. At school, being small and a little bit shy, he was socially awkward, but he wasn't bullied. And although he didn't make many friends, the ones he did make, he remained loyal to. As a bright and punctual boy, he left school aged 14 with an above-average education and learned his trade in the family bakery, working alongside his mum, his dad, and his two sisters, Evelyn and Lorna. In 1941, Donald enlisted in the army and was posted to the battlefields of France and Germany. But being a talented chef, the only injuries he sustained were a few burns in the kitchen. Here he met a new friend called Norman Tipping. He kept two souvenirs of his military service 
including a 22 caliber Luger pistol, and being demobbed in 1946, he returned to the family bakery. He was physically unimposing, being a slight 5 foot 5, 8 stone weakling, with sandy hair, sad eyes, and a sallow complexion. In terms of character, he was always placid, calm, and polite. He never argued or got into fights. Mentally, he was always busy, rarely ill, and never depressed. He rarely drank, smoked, and never did drugs. He didn't commit crimes, violence, and had no sexual perversions. Financially, he was fine. He had no debts, good savings, and few outgoings. He was generous, never short on money, and although he treated himself to a second-hand black MG10 sports car and wore a gold signet ring with his initials of DWD, he didn't lead a lavish lifestyle. He loved his job, his family, and as far as we know, he never had a girlfriend. Which seemed unfair, as although a little lonely, he was loving, compassionate, and later described in court as one of the sweetest, kindest, and big-hearted fellows that anyone could ever hope to meet. Donald Davidson was hardly the killer type. And yet, in the space of a few days, the sad-faced killer wouldn't take one life, but two. On the 1st of May 1950, Donald turned 29 years old. For weeks, he and his cousin, David Hutton, a painter and decorator from Durham, had been saving up for a week-long holiday in the southwest of England, as they both had a shared love of history, sightseeing, birdwatching and movies. In the early hours of Sunday the 20th of May, having packed a week's worth of clothes, a set of binoculars, a map and a camera, as well as £25 to cover their bed and board, with an extra £15 as a precautionary measure, as his little car had been a bit temperamental of late. Donald and David began their holiday. The weather was good, the views were great, and the food was okay. On the Sunday night, they stayed at a family friend's in Liverpool. The Monday at the Royal Hotel in Ross-on-Wye. The Tuesday at the Beach Hotel in Minehead. And the Wednesday, they stayed with Mrs Johnson, a family friend in Devon. Here he telephoned his mum, as if he didn't she would worry, and he sent his family a postcard. With only two nights of their holiday left, the trip going swimmingly, and the car running well. To get their fill of history, sightseeing, and best of all films, Donald and David decided to drive to London. Like most of his movements that weekend, although the London leg of Donald's trip was spontaneous, almost everywhere he went was witnessed and ticketed. At 4pm, he parked up at the British Legion car park on Tottenham Court Road. At 4.40pm, they arrived in Soho Square, where they met Margaret Jones, who was Donald's second cousin, and the three agreed to meet up at noon the next day 
for films, fun and food. With nowhere to stay, David recommended a place he knew. And at 6pm, the two men checked into room 42, a twin room at the Northumberland Hotel near King's Cross Station. They paid for one night, booked for three, and in his illegible scrawl, Donald signed the guest book as Mr. Davidson of County Durham. So far, the night was uneventful. For whatever reason, with there being a hint of friction between Donald and David, perhaps over the affections of Margaret, as both men were single, as David didn't fancy spending the evening alone, and asked if he could join Donald on his visit to his old army pal, Norman Tippings. Donald left without him, and supposedly stayed the night at Norman's. Although this detail cannot be verified. The next day was Friday the 26th of May. At noon, Donald met Margaret in Soho Square. And although they waited 15 minutes, as David didn't show, with no way to find him, they carried on without him. As before, although his movements were ad hoc, everything Donald did was witnessed and ticketed. At 1pm, they had lunch at Lyons Corner House Tea Room on Tottenham Court Road. And being a gentleman, Donald paid the bill. His mood was described as upbeat, polite and pleasant. At 2pm, they saw a double bill at the Odeon Cinema in Leicester Square. Mrs Mike, starring Dick Powell and Evelyn Keyes, a love story set in the Canadian Rockies. And Last Holiday, starring Alec Guinness, as a salesman with only weeks to live. At 6pm, they had dinner at the Lions Corner House on Coventry Street. At 7pm, they went to the Ritz Cinema on Leicester Square and saw The Yellow Cabman, a comedy about a clumsy cab driver starring Red Skelton. And at 9pm, having agreed to meet up again the next day, Margaret said goodbye to Donald. She called the bus home and she left him in Piccadilly Circus. Where he went next is unknown. His mood was good, the night was young, and his movements didn't seem like those of a homicidal maniac. But just four hours later, the sad-faced killer would strike. From what little we know, Agnes Mary Walsh was a 22-year-old waitress from Galway who lived in a basement flat at 16 Mornington Terrace in Camden Town with her sister Margaret. She was slim, tall and well-dressed, with long black hair, a pleasant smile and a distinctive red handbag. And that's all I can say. I can't tell you her life story, I can't speak of her hardships and I can't help you see this person as something more than just a victim, with a name, an age, and a collection of injuries. But with her details redacted, that's all she can be. And as for the rest, we can only speculate. Whether she was a prostitute is uncertain. Living in post-war London, with jobs scarce, 
rationing tight, and basic goods in short supply. It wasn't uncommon for a woman to supplement her meagre income as a sex worker or an escort, providing lonely men with an all-night girlfriend experience involving not just sex, but also dinner, a date, and conversation, as well as a warm companion in a soft bed. But based on these witness statements, even though, as a resident of Camden, Agnes had no real reason to frequent Sussex Gardens, she was well known by the local police, the hoteliers, and the sex workers. At 1.15am, on the Haymarket corner of Piccadilly Circus, Agnes approached a black cab and asked the driver, Cabby, please take us to 162 Sussex Gardens in Paddington. Thomas James identified them both by photo and stated that they seemed an odd match, as although they were both polite, whereas she was bright and bubbly, he was sad-faced and sullen, almost as if he was afraid, worried or ashamed. At 1.30am, Edward Levine, manager of the Saw Hotel, greeted Agnes and Donald, who were looking for a room. Although Donald gave no eye contact, no chit-chat, and his words were barely above a mumble, Edward later recalled that the man's gold signet ring was embossed with the initials of DWD. Having paid 30 shillings and signed the guest book in his illegible scrawl as Mr. and Mrs. Davidson of County Durham, Agnes and Donald were escorted to room 12. The door closed... And that is all we know. Almost every detail of the murder was redacted. But there's no doubt that Donald was the culprit. Of the 16 rooms in the Sora Hotel, all were occupied, nobody heard a sound, and every occupant was accounted for, except Donald. The front and back doors were locked, the windows were shut, and with Agnes having died between 2am and 4am, at 6am, Donald hailed a taxi from Sussex Gardens. Inside the bedroom, there were no signs of a struggle, as everything was where you'd expect it to be. There wasn't a break-in, as the door was locked from the outside, and there were no signs of rape. In fact, the pathologist would later confirm that no sex or sexual assault had taken place. So the question isn't how the attack took place, but why. On a double bed, huddled in a crumpled heap, dressed in her underwear, police found the partially naked body of Agnes. With her hair matted, her eyes black, her nose broken, and her face a bloodied swollen mess. She had been beaten to a pulp with a sickening level of rage and hatred. Battered with a force so fierce, his signet ring had split wide open wounds across her cheeks. And as his fist shattered the bones in her skull, police knew for certain that he would have injured his hand. And after this maniac had beaten her unconscious, with a pair of her own stockings, he had strangled Agnes to death. 
there is no denying that Donald was the sad-faced killer. And although he seems too small, too weak, and even too timid, to have inflicted such brutal and horrifying injuries on a woman he barely knew, the evidence that he murdered Agnes Walsh was irrefutable. And later, he would confess to his crime. But first, someone else would die. Four hours before Agnes's body was discovered, Donald made his escape. Only his movements weren't the mark of a maniac, desperate to evade arrest, but a troubled man, traumatized by the horror he had unleashed. And as before, everything Donald did that day was witnessed and ticketed. At 6.30 a.m., Donald returned to the Northumberland Hotel in King's Cross. Startled awake, David said his cousin looked dreadful. A dirty, crumpled, rambling wreck who couldn't account for his whereabouts or his injuries, having sustained claw marks to his left cheek, a fracture to his right hand, and his finger being badly swollen as his blooded signet ring had buckled. With Donald fighting back the tears and clearly being too ashamed to admit the truth, David didn't ask what happened and they left it at that. At 12.30pm, as previously agreed, Donald and David met Margaret Jones outside the Swan and Edgar pub in Piccadilly for another delightful day of films, fun and food. But Donald looked lost and distant. At 1pm, they lunched again at the Lion's Corner House Tea Room, but Donald didn't need to think, as he said he felt unwell. At 2pm, he picked up a newspaper to read the horse racing results, but he flicked past the sports pages without a glance. At 3pm, at the Galmont Cinema in Piccadilly, they saw Deported, a gangster flick starring Marta Torren and Jeff Chandler. Only he couldn't sit still and excused himself twice. At 5pm, feeling ill, he returned to his hotel room for a sleep, as Margaret and David ate out. And by 7pm, even though they'd paid for one more night, Donald had packed their bags, collected the car, and insisted they leave London that very evening. Their one-week holiday had started on such a high note but now, all he wanted to do was leave. Back in room 12 of the Sora Hotel, police were confronted by a confusing crime scene. On the surface, it seemed simple. A spontaneous crime of passion inflicted by a punter on a prostitute prior to the act of sex, during which he snapped and inflicted a fast and uncontrolled burst of violence until she was dead. There was no sadism, no torture, and no rape. This was anger and nothing more. But if he was angry, why didn't he flee? Agnes was murdered between 2am and 4am, and he left by taxi at 6am. So what did he do in between? We know he didn't move her, abuse her, 
or dispose of her. He didn't wash his hands, his clothes, or the room. And he didn't destroy his bloodstains, his fingerprints, or any evidence, except in a feeble attempt to make it look like a robbery, which took him seconds. So for at least the next two hours, maybe he sat alone in the tiny room and stared at the girl he had murdered. The police had no idea who the killer was. His blood group was common, type A. His fingerprints matched no one on the police files, or the recent spate of prostitute killings in the area. He paid by cash. The room was a last-minute booking, and although he signed the guest book in an illegible scrawl as Mr. and Mrs. Davidson of County Durham, as the name could have been a lie, the Met Police notified Durham. But what they did have was a very accurate description of the sad-faced killer. In the early hours of Friday the 2nd of June 1950, Donald was in his parents' bakehouse unloading the loaves from the bread oven. He'd been unusually quiet since his holiday, and having blamed his injuries on a foolish attempt to climb up to a gull's nest in Torquay, his jittery nerves and frequent tears were put down to the traumatic shock of his fictional near-death fall. With a description of the sad-faced killer circulated in the police gazette, Evelyn and Lorna joked about this similarity to their brother. The police said the man was five foot seven, thin and polite, with sandy hair, a sallow complexion, and he signed in as Mr. Davidson of Durham. It was funny, yet ridiculous, as Donald was possibly one of the nicest and sweetest men anyone could ever hope to meet. And as they laughed, they went about their duties. But Donald knew that the police were closing in. At 7.45am, Lorna left the bakehouse for two minutes, leaving Donald alone. By the time she had returned, he had gone. As a polite man, Lorna knew he would never leave without giving a reason why or saying goodbye. As a good son and a protective brother, he would never leave his sister to fend for herself. And as a proud and professional baker, he would never shirk his duties or leave the loaves to burn. But he had. With his black MG10 sports car gone and Donald missing for more than 24 hours, at noon on Saturday the 3rd of June 1950, Lorna contacted the police. Detective Constable Herbert Davidson, who knew Donald, had read the article in the police gazette, and having heard that Donald had returned from London with scratches on his hand and face, DC Davidson contacted the Met Police. Having searched the bedroom, inside they found a photo of Donald, used to verify his identity with the three witnesses, a fingerprint which matched those at the crime scene, a sample of his handwriting which matched those in the guest books, a receipt for the Sora Hotel on the night of the murder, and a set of identical clothes, as worn by the murderer, which were all splashed with his blood, type A, and Agnes's, type O, as well as a 22 caliber Luger, which was missing. 
Being the police's prime suspect, a guard was placed on his home. But by then, it was too late. At 8.30am, local farmer Ernest Chapman had found an abandoned MG sports car parked up at Finchell Abbey, a beauty spot near Framwell Gate in County Durham. The driver was missing, the doors were unlocked, on the seat was an article about a murdered girl in Paddington, and on the dashboard was a note. It read, I'm terribly sorry for causing you so much trouble, but what I'm about to do is the best way out. I have always caused you anxiety, and I am about to end it all. I hope you can forgive me. Love to you all, Donald. Nearby, at Finchall Farm, in a campsite full of tents, as several families awoke to the warmth of the dawn light, the chirping chorus of birds, and the reassuring whiff of bacon and eggs. Off to one side, by itself, was an old tatty caravan, with the lights off, the door shut, and a broken window. But it wasn't empty. Inside sat Donald. Just like his surroundings, he was dirty and dishevelled. For two days he hadn't slept, ate or spoke. Every breath descended into tears, and every word was punctuated by regret. He knew he didn't deserve to live, and with what he had done, he could never live with himself. And as his red raw eyes stared dead ahead, being unwilling to blink as each time his lids shut, all he saw was the terrified face of that helpless girl, all bloodied, beaten and gasping for breath. As the pain in his fractured fist reminded him of the first life he had taken, that same fist would also welcome his last. With the broken window blocked by an old rag, as lethal levels of toxic gas spewed from the open taps of a 13-kilo canister, as he breathed the highly flammable vapours deep into his lungs, in his fist, Donald lit his lighter. At 8.25am, an explosion ripped through Frenchall Farm as the little caravan erupted in a fireball of tangled metal, buckled frames and flying glass shards. As beyond its flaming curtains, smoke billowed. Out of its twisted door, with the ragged threads of his clothes on fire, his searing skin scorched and his sandy hair a black charred mess, as Donald staggered towards the woods, and petrified people panicked, screaming, Get a doctor! Call an ambulance! Any help would be too late. Sinking to his knees, as each tear evaporated the second his salty drops touched his burning cheeks, out of his singed larynx, he was heard to utter just one word. Sorry! And as he clutched his Luger pistol, in the sizzling fist which had ended Agnes's life. Like that, he would end his own. Being on holiday with his family, 
A doctor arrived on the scene just moments later, but with Donald breathing in short decreasing rasps, his pulse low, his body still smoking, and a bullet hole through both temples. Donald was rushed to Newcastle Hospital, but on arrival, he was declared dead. A trial was held at Westminster Coroner's Court on the 13th of June 1950, just two weeks after the murder of Agnes Walsh and the suicide of Donald Davidson. With Donald dead, and the evidence in both cases being irrefutable, there was no reason to go to a criminal trial. The jury retired for just 15 minutes and returned with a unanimous verdict. Donald was guilty of murder and suicide whilst the balance of his mind was disturbed. Had he been alive, he would have been sentenced to death. But being sickened by his own crime and being his own judge, jury and executioner, Donald had dispensed on himself his own form of justice. No one knows why he murdered Agnes Walsh, except for Agnes and himself, and they are both dead. He was an unlikely man, committing an unlikely murder on a woman he barely knew. And although there was no denying that Donald Davidson was the sad-faced killer, we know what he did, when he did it, and where. But even without a redacted file, the one detail we can never explain is why. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget, soon I shall be filling a kettle with water, ooh, adding milk, ah, stirring in sugar, ee, and generally doing lots of waffling, yay, which will come in your ears shortly. ooh -er. But before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Lise Rosenlund, Catherine Carey, Andrew Lewis, and Mary Diel. I thank you. With a special thank you to Amy Graham for the very kind donation. I thank you. And also a thank you to everyone who's left very kind reviews on iTunes and your podcast app. It's very much appreciated. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. <sighs> right. That was that. That was extra mile. Let's have a listen to the sound. Barely a sound outside, nice and quiet. That is bloody typical. All the way through that was some uh, some blackbird having a good old squawk. Like every six seconds. Oh, I've been fighting with that and now I've stopped recording. He's bloody sharp, hasn't he? Little bastard. Oh, anyway, everyone, extra mile time. Here we are, extra mile. Unscripted, unedited, waffle, waffle, waffle. I make a cup of tea. I come back with my tea. I grab my cake. I don't eat the cake while we're listening to it because people don't like me eating the cake, so I have to wait until afterwards. Uh, I'll, uh, we'll do a quiz in a bit, and I'll fill you in on some details that didn't make it into this episode. Blah, there we go. Right. Time to open some windows because there's no windows open. Time to uh, make a cup of tea. So, for those who don't know, uh, my kettle is about 12 feet away from where I am now. I can't move the microphone near to where the kettle is. Therefore, I will go very distant. And then you'll hear me making up tea, but I'll try and pick up my voice a little bit. And then I'll come back. Right. Heading off to make a cup of tea. Heading off. One step, two step, three step, four step, five step, six step, seven. And I open a window while I'm there. Oh dear, that's bright. I'm gonna open up some curtains as well. Could do with some light in here. Kettle, fill up with water. There we go. Glug, 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 glug. Oh, this is everyone's favorite bit. Oh, look, he's making a cup of tea. Oh, he's got the, oh, he's just put, just put the gas on. Oh, it's exciting. Oh, look, he's got a tea bag. I wonder what type of tea bag it is. Oh. Is it going to be PG or is it Tetley? Oh, the excitement. Oh, he's adding sugar. Oh, is it what going to be one or two? Oh, it's two. Oh, it must be a good day. He's added two sugars. Oh, he's going to open up another window. Oh, this is exciting. He's opened a window. Oh, another window. A bit more air. He's going to open up another curtain. Oh, my God. It's like Christmas. He's moving a pillow. Oh, my God. Life is good. He's moved a pillow. He's sitting down again. Oh, he's going to close the curtains because it's too bright. Oh, oh, all the treasures, all the excitement. Whew, there you go. That's extra mile. Did you enjoy that? Was that good? Right. Cake of the day. Oh, yes, I had to hold hold off on this one. I think I bought this two days ago, but I didn't go shopping yesterday. I uh, don't plan to go for another couple of days, so I had to hold off on this cake for a bit. But this is a chocolate twist. Whoa. About eight inches long, probably an inch and a half wide. It's uh, a pastry softer than a croissant, gooier than a donut, with some kind of uh, jam in there. It's it's a kind of a, a, a light jam. Like I think it's more of a syrup, and there's some chocolate sprinkly bits and more kind of like round uh 
they're not really sprinkles they're kind of chocolate drops it looks like not dog chocks but mm, it smells very nice it's one of those kind of cakes that you could have with a nice coffee but you wouldn't dunk it because otherwise it goes all horrible um so yeah that's next or oh, get get in my belly get in my belly ah so this is going to be weird there's not really a lot to say i was uh, having a zoom chat with some friends during the week and we're all kind of admitting the same now because of all the, the lockdown we haven't got anything to say it's kind of we go online and we all we all chat for a couple of hours but we've got, we're just repeating the same old shit so we st- a lot of us have started doing quizzes online with each other because it's a good way to fill fill time but the rest of it is all about what have you done today i have done nothing today i've been indoors today right okay great did you go anywhere no couldn't right oh <laughs> so it's all same old shite so same here really i'm just podcasting away trying to get as much done as possible uh trying to push myself ahead far because obviously um uh, a couple of days will go out of the diary because mum's funeral next week so that will take up a couple of days to do that and then uh, other things are happening as well uh but i'm just trying to get all these episodes up and done so i can get myself a little bit ahead so hopefully when when all this all this palaver is over <clears throat> whether that's in three weeks which i doubt well, that's in a couple of months, probably more likely. Uh, hopefully I can be all sorted, but you don't need to worry. I've got enough episodes to last us until the end of the year. Uh, and then obviously I take two months off anyway. And uh, and then I could probably work around that. I've probably got, I could probably do some more episodes or work, find a way of working out. Anyway, we've got lots more extra mile to come. Uh, unless, unless my uh, podcast microphone breaks. Oh, my laptop goes, oh, God. Thank God I've got a new laptop. Thank God I've got, I've got a spare backup uh, microphone, but it's really shit. Really shit. Anyway, uh, what else can we do? I'm just, I'm waiting for the kettle to literally brew, so I'm not going to dive into anything just quickly. Come on, kettle. Brew, 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 brew. Uh uh coot update uh not really much going on outside not much in terms of coots we've got a lot of swan action every day uh, there's a pair of swans that fly past really low past the boat and i keep meaning to try and film it because you can hear them just about taking off because swans are graceful on the water but they're bloody awful flying because they're they're too heavy uh but you can hear them going like they've got really bad asthma trying to take off i keep trying to take a picture of the two of them flying in tandem but I never get, you know, by the time you do your password on your phone and then you open it up and then you press the camera and then you have to wait like a couple of seconds for the camera to load up and then you switch it on. And then you realise it's in selfie mode and then you've got to get rid of the selfie mode. And then by the time you get there, they're bugging off. So I'm just not ready with that. So, uh, but that's about it. Kettle's getting there slowly. I won't do it too hot. Uh, it's a Sunday today. Today would normally be a day when I'm doing me murder mile walks. Obviously, murder mile walks aren't on until all this is blown over. Um, I think I'm going to make the decision about when I go back to murder mile. Even if the government turn around and go, right, everyone, it's fine now. You can go out. I think I'm going to keep looking at my charts, and if Joe, if the incidence of uh, infection is still going up, because this is a kind of the the tours, you kind of meeting and greeting people. I think it's best to be safe and. Uh, do you know, I think I think a lot of us, our governments are kind of going, yeah, 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 it's fine. You can all go back now. But really, you know what they're thinking. You know, they're thinking it's about the economy, not the people. And I think, do you know, if we rush back to work too quickly, people could get ill even faster. And then our economy is going to be 
fucked forever. So be safe, be safe. Oh, the kettle doing the brew. There we go. Let it stew a bit. Pop in some milk. Milk, milk, lemonade around the corner chocolate's made. Uh, there we go. Let it stew a bit. I don't want it too stewed today. I'm going to have a light one. Splash of milk. Ooh. Oh, I can't wait till I can go back to Costa Coffee. I'm looking forward to that. Costa Coffee. Yeah, sit there, have a Costa Coffee, me soya latte, uh, with me two with me two brown sugars in there, sitting there abusing their electricity and their internet. Oh, great days. Whew, right, okay, okay, okay. Um let's let's do the quiz let's do the quiz and then we'll, i'll give you some information and then we'll we'll go back right quiz everyone ready don't forget as always uh these questions some are easy some are hard some of these questions may be missing uh depending on whether i edit things out um the last couple of weeks oh, God, burpees uh haven't uh haven't ed taken out any questions because everything's pretty much remained in so right question one what was Donald's middle name? Ooh, I mentioned it at the start. But were you listening? Ooh. Um, it's a difficult one, that one. Not an easy name. Uh, question two. What business did Donald and his family run? That's an easy one. We all know that one. And in fact, that's, that's one that I should especially know. Uh, question three. What village did Donald live in? It was a little village between Sunderland and Durham, in County Durham. I think I only mentioned it once at the very start. Uh, question four. Where in Soho did Donald and David meet Donald's second cousin, Margaret? So where in Soho did Donald and David meet Margaret? That's the first time they met them when they turned up. Question five. Donald and Margaret had lunch at the Lions Cornhouse Tea Room on Tottenham Court Road. But which murder, as mentioned in Murder Mile previously, had occurred in that building just five years earlier? Ooh, if you know your Murder Mile episodes, then you'll guess this one. This was the Lions Cornhouse Tea Room on Tottenham Court Road. Just to say, if you're about to say the Blackout Ripper, you're wrong. Right. Uh, question six. What was the name of Donald's friend slash army buddy? Mm, I think I mentioned that twice, I think. Question seven. Donald came to London three times prior, but why? Ooh. Two reasons are in there. Twice to one thing, once to another thing. Question eight. What was embossed on his signet ring? Mmm, exciting. Question nine. What type of car did Donald drive? Uh, you can have uh, the type of car. If you had the colour, that would be great. That would be lovely. Uh, question ten. This one's difficult. Name all four members of his family, of Donald's family. Obviously, a couple of times I've mentioned his sisters, but at the very start, I mentioned his parents too. Right, there are your questions. We'll come back and we'll do those shortly. Um, 
this is one of those odd files uh it's a nice big fat file i opened it up i thought great didn't know anything about the case i thought great i'll give it a go uh opened it up and it's one of those files immediately i was like oh god damn it most of it's redacted it was like big fat file probably around oh probably around 800 pages deep 127 pages were redacted Whew. and it, although although kind of sometimes your heart sinks do you know uh, as as with the uh we had one of these cases uh last season don't forget and kind of even though that what was missing was what was redacted was kind of annoying when you look at it actually what was redacted was actually quite interesting and that was the story on gosfield street about the lady who was murdered in her flat and i kind of worked out that actually it was her baby who was in the flat at the time so what they've done is they've redacted the details of the fact that the baby was there during the time of the killing which kind of makes sense because you know baby would still be alive and would yet still be alive today so um obviously i'm not going to go into the details that were redacted in that file i had actually read the file a couple of about a year a couple of years ago i'd had a kind of a, a squiz at it um so i kind of know a lot of the details that are redacted but i'm not going to share those on here because it's you know family's wishes that's uh that's why they're redacted uh but there were some details obviously not relating to agnes so this was interesting uh inside the file um there was a picture of a postcard someone had uh uh there, there were things written on the back of it i've got to be careful about what i say um and this postcard uh, was in the possession of Lorna Davidson, who was obviously Donald's sister. Um, uh, and it made reference to a man. Uh, it doesn't say his name, but it, it, they just refer to him as he in there. Um, but we don't know who that is. Uh, all these details were redacted. So we know that there was a postcard. Lorna has access to the postcard. We, we don't know who it was from, but it makes reference to someone. And all of this was redacted and we don't know why. Um, I'm going to leave that hanging there because I don't know any more about that. I'd love to know what that what was written on that postcard. I wonder if it was the postcard that was sent by Donald when he was in um, when he was in Devon because he sent one to his family, but we don't know. Or maybe he sent one from London. Um, okay, the culprit Donald. Whoops, almost said his middle name then. Donald Davidson, twenty nine. Uh, uh, he lived with his family at a house called Menteith on the Hetton Road in... Oh, I almost said the name of the village then. Oh, got to be so careful. Oh, God. His his, his mother, pff, can't mention her name. Uh, everyone said he was a, a quite a normal man, quiet, well-mannered, uh, no business worries, single, uh, respectable parents. Uh, trying to be careful not to trip us up for that quiz. Let's squiz that past because I've just mentioned the sisters there. Uh, born May the 1st, 1921, sandy haired, receding at the front, white, uh, of a thin, pale white face, nervous expression, slight build with a clean com complexion. He was five foot five tall, uh, so about two inches shorter than Agnes. Pair, his hair parted on the right hand side. Um, Obviously, as mentioned, he joined the Royal Army Service Corps in August 1941 and was, and was demobbed August 1946. He served in France and Germany as a cook. Uh, uh, and obviously there he picked up uh, two guns as souvenirs. Many servicemen did this. He brought them back with him. What else have we got? Um, this is something that kind of... I've slightly alluded to this in the story, but it's kind of an interesting thing, whether this is in the redacted stuff. But 
Donald made reference to the fact that he was coming to London to see his old army buddy, Norman Tippings. What do we know about Norman? Uh, um, I've tried to have a good old search for this, but it's kind of a lot of this is hearsay. Norman Tippings, born 8th of May 1914, allegedly. Uh, apparently he died in Bolton, Lancashire. He met Donald in the army and lives in London. Uh, David either said he lived in Islington or Isleworth. He knew it began with an I. Uh, and that Norman's father was a retired policeman. Um, the problem is, the, uh, as far as we know, unless it's in the redacted part of the file, but the police were never able to track down Norman Tippings or to interview him. So even though... Uh, Donald said that the night before he stayed with Norman Tipping. That's why I kind of say there's, there's, we can't prove that because there is no no evidence that he stayed with Norman. They couldn't find who Norman Tipping's was, so we don't know. Um, that's a bit of an open area there. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, everyone says that uh, Donald was a really nice man in court. He was described as kind, peace loving. Um, his mum said, uh, yes, the only thing I have against him is that I had known him to pick up a baby in the shop and to nurse it and to t uh, to tell him to get on with his work. Um, the only bad thing anyone seems to say about him is just that he was a really nice guy and, you know, sometimes a little bit distracted. Uh, described by David Hutton, his cousin, as a not, not a violent man, very quiet, rarely drank much, usually just a shandy. Uh, wouldn't steal anything, led a very normal life, almost teetotal, and smoked in moderation. He was never short of money. He earned £8 a week, which is a decent wage. Didn't have an expensive lifestyle. Uh, no periods of illness or depression. He doesn't have a criminal record either, and he's never been questioned by the police at any point in his life. Um, I didn't put this in the story. This is when the body was discovered. So the next morning at 10.47am on Saturday, 27th of May 1950... Um, Edward Levine, who was the proprietor of this Saura Hotel, uh, he found the body. He was doing his usual rounds, going around, knocking on the door, seeing if anybody wanted a cup of tea. Um, I couldn't find out whether they'd requested it the night before. It wasn't in the diary. Um, uh, as he approached room 12, this is the annoying thing. It's literally in his in his statement. He goes... He, uh, I, I was going off to make breakfast to everyone as I approached room 12 and then all of that is redacted after that um, every single element to do with this case to do with the murder is redacted literally I'll show you pictures online like if you're especially if you're, you're on my Patreon account I'll show you pictures it literally is just block sections just all redacted not even just like as he approached the room he saw redacted and then on the table he saw redacted not that it's just literally the whole the whole lot redacted so uh so literally what we know in the room uh were bits and pieces from fragments which are in the witness statements that are there or the kind of the uh, the court documents or the pathologist report or the police report were there I, I squeezed bits out of there and there were some bits in the newspapers from the time where obviously even though this file is redacted now a lot of press reports uh, or articles in the newspapers weren't redacted, so I was able to squeeze a couple of pieces out of there. But even with that, this is not this is not a case that was widely known. It's not a big case. Uh, some people refer to it as the Nylons murder, but it's it's kind of there's not much going on really. Uh, bah, 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 bah. Yeah, so I, I I got a lot of reports from uh, Chief Superintendent Beveridge, good name of the CID, 
Police Constable Arsenal Guinness, that should be your new name. Uh, Chief Superintendent Beveridge. <laughs> uh, and the report of Detective Inspector Davies. Uh, but obviously all of their reports were uh, redacted as well, as well as Dr. William Kennedy, who is the police divisional surgeon. He turned up at 11.25am, so about half an hour later, and declared life extinct, said that she'd die between 2 and 4pm. Um, police found fingerprints uh, of Donald in the uh, hotel room. Obviously, they didn't know it was Donald, but they just knew that he was a suspect. Uh, and what they did uh, was they took those fingerprints and they compared them. I mentioned this in the story, I hope, uh, to a spate of unsolved prostitute killings in the area around that time. And those would have included Ginger Ray, who we've dealt with, uh, Black Rita, haven't dealt with because the file is uh, still redacted Russian Dora working on at the moment and Margaret Cook who I think is our episode 13 I think so you can go back and listen to those if you want to he he definitely wasn't involved with them I think this I think this is definitely just a one-off murder uh there were three witnesses at the time so uh Thomas James who was the cab driver the hotel owner Edward Levine and Margaret Walsh who was Agnes's sister there was one more witness, but that also was redacted. We don't know why. Um, this is where I didn't put this in the story because it throws you off. I because this is really telling you Donald's story, but literally there's a there's a piece that's missing in the story. So the witnesses all gave a fantastic description of Agnes and of Donald, um, but this is where things go slightly wrong. Uh, unfortunately, Edward Levine. Um, this is what happens where people think that they're doing a great job by giving the police uh, a too good a description. And the problem is it, it, it sends the police off in a wild goose chase. So Edward admitted that he hadn't actually spoken to uh, Donald because Donald was kind of mumbling. And, uh, you know, Agnes was really doing all the talking. Uh, and because he had a, kind of an elongated face, kind of sallow complexion, Edward, Edward's exact words were he looked like a pole i.e. he looked like a Polish man or, you know, someone from Eastern Europe, someone Slavic. Um, and unfortunately, the police jumped on this. They were like, oh, it's a oh, it's probably a poll. OK, that makes sense. Uh, the press jumped on this as well. And it's in all the papers. It's kind of police on the hunt for a Polish man, Polish man. And this is what they kept going on and on about. Um, so uh, details were obviously put in the police gazette and it was it was pushed out there that, you know, they got the good details of of what donald looked like but unfortunately they kept saying uh probably police are probably looking for a polish man even though you know the details here said mr davidson which could have been a false name but you never know uh also uh with the fake burglary that kind of donald set up whether it was fake we're still not too sure they got the uh agnes's missing gold watch that was never found but police were focused on that they were like right we need to find this gold watch we find the gold watch we find the killer Unfortunately, that's not. It didn't turn out to be that fruitful. So there's a couple of uh, misleads on here. Um, when Agnes and his sister, sorry, uh, when Donald and his sisters, uh, his sisters were reading the article in the Newcastle Journal about what is termed as the the nylon murders, as the press were calling it. Um, David was in the bakery with his sisters. His sister said, "Oh." They've got a poll for this murder, i.e. a Polish man. And, and Donald replied, if you read that correctly, you'll see that they don't think it's a poll at all that did this. 
nothing else at all. So he's actually quite kind of eagerly going through all these newspapers to find out what the police knew. I think I think I have more on that shortly. There's this uh, whole bit that I wrote down about the police. Police basically, they got in touch with the Durham police and said, "We're looking for a Polish man." Um, uh, and they gave a description. And then a couple of days later, not too far away, um, a Polish man did actually commit suicide. And the police were like, solved, case solved, that's him. Polish man commits suicide. So they went off and they went on this whole tangent of this is the man, this is the man who we suspect. And it's like it wasn't. It was just happened to be a Polish man who committed suicide. Uh, uh, what else do we get? Uh, so uh, the autopsy was conducted by Dr. Francis M. Camps. He's popped up quite a lot. Uh, he said death was caused by manual, stra- by well, by strangulation. Um, uh, so she, uh, Agnes was beaten first with his fists. And then while she was unconscious, then he strangled her. Uh, obviously, there was stolen items in the room. Was the lady's gold wristwatch, which was hexagonal. Um there's a big whole bit which is unfortunately redacted in the file as well and it I, I really don't know why there was a gold watch later redeemed by someone name redacted on a payment of two pounds 11 shillings from a pawn shop at in bolton road in Pen, pendlebury uh, and and this was later handed into the police but they still weren't unsure if it was the gold watch from agnes or whether it was just a gold watch uh, but the person involved with this watch had three counts of larceny and warehouse breaking. We don't know who that person is. Um, from Agnes's uh, purse was also taken a 10 shilling note. That was all of her money. And two fingers were ripped off her fingers. But these were believed to have been disposed of. Obviously, uh, Donald didn't have any money problems. He he had, he had good money on him. So he didn't have a reason to steal any of it at all. I think it was just to make it look like a uh, robbery fingerprints were found at the scene uh it was quite hard for the police to kind of find decent fingerprints because obviously it's a hotel room wouldn't have been cleaned as well as it should have been so obviously you go into a hotel room there's probably a couple of hundred fingerprints uh but they managed to they managed to pull a few off there uh which they managed to narrow it down to uh donald obviously he wasn't on the police files but uh it was somewhere for them to start uh the hotel had 16 rooms all were occupied that night many of them <clears throat> by u.s airmen on leave from their bases yeah uh, uh every resident was interviewed and accounted for except for donald yeah u.s airmen on leave with their inverted commas girlfriends <laughs> uh, uh, um what else have we got? What else have we got? Uh, I think that's it. I thought I put in stuff about... Da, 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 da. Yep, they've all got a brief description of him and it was quite good. Her bloodstains were found on Donald's trousers, uh, which matched his blood group and Agnes's. Uh, oh, oh, and there was some uh, hair on the carpet which matched... Uh, Donald's as well, his uh, sandy hair. Uh, the red handbag, her Agnes's red handbag had been rifled through uh, and a number of addressed envelopes were inside. This is all we really know. It's like the details from the murder scene were really, really scarce. Uh, and of course, about her life, we know literally nothing about her life. Oh, okay, this was it. Hang on. Um, 
uh let's go back this was a news report i found and it was in search for the uh the uh here we go i'll just read it okay police probe poll's death police investigating the murder of agnes mary walsh 22 year old irish girl whose body was found in the room of a paddington hotel room uh, they say boarding house on saturday are interested in this discovery of a dead pole uh, on the main north road near durham so not too far away from where um uh, donald was found scotland yard are conducting are contacting durham police to ascertain see that's why they connected it with polish man uh and durham so because obviously that's what uh, donald's have written in the book uh scotland yard are contacting durham police to ascertain whether this man could have been in the paddington area about the time of the murder efforts are also being made to try and establish where the gloomy man with polite manners inverted commas went after after he left the boarding house on saturday which we already know a parcel found in a dustbin on saturday was at first thought likely to provide valuable clues but it contained amongst other articles two polish military flashes but so far detectives have been unable to co connect this uh, with the murder they are not certain that the man was a pole uh, the pole's body was found under a tree at portobello near gateshead and is believed to be that of 24 year old stanislav <sighs> lots of z's and k's uh, he appeared to have died from a stab wound to the chest. Uh, da, 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 da. Just seeing what else is in there. There are bits that I'm just trying not to mention because obviously these were bits that were redacted by the family. Uh, I think that's it. I think that's it. So that was all the stuff to do with um, the, the mysterious Polish man. He was he was not connected to him at all. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to do the answers to the questions and then I can have some tea and some cake and then start editing this down. Ooh. Right, Ooh, we seem to have had a lot of suicide stories this season. It really, it's the luck of the draw. Literally, I pick out random files and I go through them and as long as they're... I don't know anything about them normally from the start, but as long as they're an interesting and compelling story i just go right we're going to go with this one uh if they're not compelling i just bin them uh but yeah we, we've had a real run of kind of suicide stories uh it's random i don't think we had any in the last season but there we go right okay questions more burpees oh dear um question one what was donald's middle name answer westgarth it was donald westgarth davidson question two what business did donald and his family run this is an easy one we all we all got this one a bakery i didn't put it in the story it was actually a bakery and a confectioner's it's called the bakery shop at uh 21 new bottle street which is uh in in the village we're about to mention so question three what village did donald live in it was hootenless spring I've tried different variations of this. I've checked online. Some people call it Hootenless Spring. Some people call it Houghtonless Spring. There doesn't seem to be a consensus, so I've just stuck with one version. Uh, this seems to be the, the the fact with a lot of places. People go, "Oh no, you've mispronounced it." And it's like, mm, I think you'll find if you if you actually bother to talk to people who live there, you'll find there's different versions of it. Ah oh, dear, uh, there's no there's no one consensus. Um, uh, question four where in soho did donald and david meet margaret 
place we've uh, visited many times on Murder Mile before, and that is Soho Square. Uh, question five. Donald and Margaret had lunch at the Lions Corner House Tea Room on Tottenham Court Road. But which murder had occurred there previously just five years earlier? Ooh. That murder was Jack Tratzett. If you go back to the episodes, I can't remember which one it is. I think it's like 36 or something like that. That was the one that was a young man who uh, his uh, his younger brother had... Uh, they never really... It, it, it seems like he had cerebral palsy. And his sister was deaf. Uh, he didn't like his dad. So he felt his brother and sister would be better off if he just killed them. And he tried to shoot them to death inside the Lion's Cornhouse tea room. Uh, he did. He, he was successful. Um... And then he tried to kill himself. Oh, I think I think that episode's called The Corner House Killer. Um, question six. What was the name of Donald's friend and army buddy? Oh, well, I just gave that one away in the, the extra mile bit, haven't I? It was Norman Tipping. Norman Tipping, whose details we were really struggling to find anything about. I've done a good old search. There's lots of Norman Tippings. Tipping and Tippings. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's hard to pin down. Anyway, to be honest, I'm not really that bothered, to be honest. <laughs> Question seven. Donald came to London three times prior, but why? Uh, twice he came to an... Twice he came to a catering exhibition at the London Olympia, and once when Burnley, his favourite football team, were playing Charlton Athletic in the cup final. Question eight. What was embossed on his signet ring? Ooh. Uh, the answer was his initials of DWD. Question nine. What type of car did Donald drive? The answer was a black MG10 sports car. Oh, and question ten. Difficult one, but here we go. Name all four members of the davidson family right obviously oh that bird's out back again listen to it annoying little bastard uh uh obviously we've got his two sisters who were mentioned a couple of times who were evelyn and lorna but also his mum was mary and his dad was matthew so there we go there's that that was exciting Wow. right I'm going to go off and have a cup of tea, have this lovely, lovely cake. I'm going to edit this, get all this done. A little bit of sunlight outside. It looks nice. Maybe maybe we'll have a little bit, bit of a walk in the, in the woods and uh, stay away from people and just go, oh, get away from me, you uh, you people. It's weird the kind of people who are kind of, you know, we all know our distances, but it's weird. Sometimes people cross you and it's just like you can't help but go, hmm oh people people or joggers joggers are the worst with it with all the exhaling going spitting everywhere and oh yeah which is why i think was it in a paris they're kind of banning exercise during certain periods of the day to stop all the joggers going out and going yeah and they're nasty germs joggers germs anyway that's me done cake time tea time bye 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 see you all soon it's been fun. La 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 la. Bye bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.